Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. This is New Books and National Security, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Beth Windish. I'm joined by Evie Pomporis, author of the book Becoming Bulletproof. Evie Pomporis is a former Secret Service agent, writer, and national TV contributor who covers topics such as national security, law enforcement, and criminal justice. She holds two master's degrees, one in forensic psychology and the other in journalism from Columbia University. Evie can currently be seen as an assessor on the Bravo series Spy Games. In addition, Evie's book, Becoming Bulletproof, is available everywhere books are sold. In it, she shares lessons learned from protecting presidents, as well as insights and skills from the oldest and most elite security force in the world to help you prepare for stressful situations, instantly read people, influence how you are perceived, and live a more fearless life. A special agent for the United States Secret Service for over 12 years, Evie was on the Presidential Protective Division for President Barack Obama and First Lady Michelle Obama. During her career, she was a criminal investigator, worked undercover, and was an interrogator for the agency's elite polygraph unit, trained in lie detection, human behavior, and cognitive influence. Evie's heroic efforts as a first responder following the 9-11 terror attacks on the World Trade Center in New York City earned her the U.S. Secret Service Valor Award. Evie, welcome to the show. Hi, Beth. Thank you so much for having me. What led you to pursue a career in public service and national security? I didn't really know that I was going to go into this field, but I always had this sense of wanting to protect and to serve. I actually studied political science and government in college. And I worked for a congresswoman for about two years as an intern for free. And basically, you know, working in her office for a really long time. And I learned so much about public service and helping people. So I think for me, going into the U.S. Secret Service was just as just an extension of that. I guess, you know, if I look back at it, I, I really... I wanted, you know, my mindset to stay in lay terms was, you know, I want to be 80 years old one day, look back, sit in my rocking chair and think I I did something, you know, greater than myself. I served in some way. And for me, you know, we're all different, but for me, that, that was something important. A lot of people are dealing with fear right now. And you talk about how we can manage fear. Why did you decide to write about this topic and share your experiences? It's wild because I had no idea, obviously, as most of us did, what what type of environment we would be when my book came out. We came out, it came out during the middle of a pandemic and, you know, all these protests that we're having and, and riots and unrest that's happening within the country. And there's so much fear in our environment right now. It's not like, I always knew there was fear in the world. I mean, in some situations more than others and some people more than others. And because I also had my experience with fear and I do understand that fear breeds hate, fear breeds insecurity, 
And I wanted to use everything I learned as a special agent and bring it to, to people and say, listen, I, I'm no different than you. I, 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 I learned from the best to try to be my best, to be able to overcome fear, to overcome adversity, to overcome situations. Here's everything I learned. It, I put it in this book and use it. And the book truly, Beth, it, it's, I wrote it almost like a manual. It's not a book that you read and then you're done with. It's a book that you read and you go back to and then back to. I have, there's some folks that, you know, and it's it's so impactful to hear and it resonates with me when I hear people say, you know, I actually got your audiobook, but I want to have the hard copy so I can take notes. Or I'll hear people, people reach out telling me I read your book once, now I'm reading it again. Because I really jam-packed it with so much information. And it's kind of like, here's everything I learned. You don't need to go through any through, through any academy, through any training, through any public service environment. Here it is. Take what I learned and use it like a buffet. I tell everybody it's a buffet. You know, when you go to a buffet, you don't eat everything at the buffet. You pick and choose what you like and you and you use that for yourself. And the book's the same way. It's like, look, here's everything. You don't have to use it all, but take what you like, what works for you, what resonates for you and incorporate this in your life so you can feel stronger, feel more resilient, feel more confident, feel less fearful because there is so much fear and in, in so many ways, and not even just with the pandemic and what's happening, but also people losing their jobs, struggling financially, not knowing what they're going to do next. So it's super important that we kind of collect ourselves and, 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 and reflect and say, okay, it's not, I'm, I'm not falling apart. I'm, okay, I'm going to be okay. And having somebody with you along that journey, that was my hope for when I wrote that book to say, you're not alone. Here's some guidance. Here's some advice. And you begin with discussing how fear works, and you explore human cognitive biases, which skew our view of risk probability. How does this come into play and impact how we perceive threats? I wanted to lay out in a thoughtful way to people what it is that you're afraid of and how fear works. And most people understand the fight or flight response. People kind of have a a general understanding of it. But I really wanted to go into detail with it, primarily because, one, you'll see that you typically have a pattern as an individual as far as like what your response is to a threat, whether it's fight, whether it's flight, or whether it's freeze, whether you're that person that gets so overstimulated that they, they can't do one or the other. And to make people understand it and feel comfortable with it, it, because when we react a certain way, when our adrenaline kicks in and all this stuff happens, we become afraid of that. That's where people feel like I'm having an anxiety attack. I'm having this negative reaction. I'm so afraid. It's like, don't be afraid of it. It's normal. It's appropriate. And it's your body helping you. And I felt that that was super important because we've grown accustomed to be afraid of how we're going to react or how our body's going to respond. And I feel the most important thing was this is normal and it's okay, but let's understand it. Let's understand what your pattern is, what your typical response is when a threat comes your way assess it, and then figure out how do, we, how do we navigate that? Because in some situations, we do want to fight, but in other situations, fleeing, and I'd argue that probably in the majority of the situations, walking away is the smartest thing to do. And sometimes not doing anything, freezing up when it happens to you, don't be afraid of it. It just means this is what's happening. And so when you're familiar with that, when you, you know, ancient Greeks had a saying, know thyself, when you know thyself, when this stuff happens, you're going to be less afraid more confident. And as 
more adverse, adversity and obstacles come into your life, you won't be afraid of that. You'll be familiar with it. You'll say, I've been here. I understand what's happening, happening to me in a logical way, and I'm okay. You also mention how fear can make us miss opportunities or it can make our world a little smaller. How can we tell when fear is making us safe versus when we might be overreacting to fear? For the most part, I think we all instinctually know when fear is taking things away from us. For example, I remember when I was in the service, I was very good friends with another female special agent and was a good friend. And she was very competent, very well put together, very smart. Um, and I was pushing her. I'm like, hey, let's both apply to the president's detail. And the, what some of the public doesn't know is that you don't automatically get the president's detail. That's a very coveted position. You have to actually try out for it, put in for it. If you get selected for it, then you have to go through a whole other process. So, so it's not easy to get. And if you don't get it, People will know you didn't get it. So there's there's all these different factors. One, I have to go through all this training. Am I capable of going through this internal selection process? And then two, if I don't make it, what will other people think? And then also, it's a, it's a probably one of the most intense assignments in the service. And I remember um, her having this reluctancy, like, I don't know, I can't do this. Maybe I should just go to a former president, which there's nothing wrong with going to a former president, to protecting a former president. And I knew she wanted it. And eventually she never put in for it because of all these variables that she was worried about. It's hard. What if I don't make it? What will people think? And it, it broke my heart because there was nobody more capable than she was to do the job. And I think that's a great example of fear taking over where you don't try for something because you think one, you can't do it. And two, we fear rejection. We feel we fear failure. And this is somebody who is super strong, super confident person. And yet she let her fear dictate what path she pursued, what career choices she made. And that's really the essence of where we know, hey, fear is holding me back in this specific situation. You use the analogy of a bulletproof vest to talk about how to protect yourself but also at the same time realizing that you can't be completely invincible. Can you talk more about how that analogy called to you and how it translates into how you describe mental toughness? So the bulletproof vest that I wore, again, the majority of public knows we protect the president. We have other protectees. Our job is somebody shoots, you know, somebody, you know, shoots a gun or tries to attack somebody we're protecting. We, we put ourselves between the threat and the person we're protecting, which is completely counterintuitive to anybody's survival instincts, completely. It's like, not only am I going to jump in front, I'm going to make myself as big as possible to absorb whatever attack, whatever threat is coming your way. So that's why we wore bulletproof vests for obvious reasons. Now, at the same time, when I, when I would wear that vest, every time I put the vest on, when I go to the White House or whatever my function was, I did it with the understanding this vest is here to protect me, to protect my life, to protect my vital organs. However, I also understood it's not protecting all of me. My head is exposed. My arms are exposed. My legs are exposed. So I am still vulnerable. And so what was extremely important to me, I didn't want to sell people nonsense. I didn't want to sell people myths because often we read these books or we hear people saying you're invincible. You can, you know, you're impenetrable. Nothing can stop you. And so when people 
feel don't feel invincible when they feel that they're they are stoppable they think something's wrong with them or when they feel vulnerable they think something's wrong with them there's nothing wrong with you when you feel vulnerable you're supposed to feel vulnerable because you're not 100% bulletproof in anything in life even myself when i put this vest on i understood look i'm doing my best to protect myself i'm taking all the precautions necessary at the same time i understand that i am not entirely invincible so I made peace and accepted my vulnerabilities. And that's also important. It's like, and that's the essence of the book. Here's everything you can do to make yourself strong, resilient, deal with adversity, feel bulletproof, feel confident. And at the same time, be okay with the fact that you're not entirely bulletproof, that things will come at you in life. And that is okay. And it is to be expected. So that way, when they happen, you're not sitting there thinking, oh my gosh, I'm a mess. I'm a failure. How could they let this happen to me? It's just, it is going to happen. And again, it's okay. The role of stress is brought up in your discussion of adaptability. How do you see stress tolerance as an important feature of resilience? We kind of have this mindset, I think, in society more so now, like we want to live a stress-free life. Everything needs to be Zen. And I love my Zen as much as the next person. However, Dealing with challenges, facing obstacles, and adversity is a good thing. Stress is a good thing. It can be a good thing. We do want to minimize it as much as possible, but we don't want to make it extinct. We, do, we, we don't want to make it so that we're not dealing with anything at all. Because when it, if we avoid stressful situations, if we stay away from anything that has stress associated to it, we're going to try to cocoon ourselves to the point where when life does give us a stressful or difficult situation, because it will, because you cannot avoid everything. It is not possible. But when life does that and you haven't dealt with adversity or difficult, stressful situations over a period of time, when life does throw something your way, it's going to crush you. And so it's, 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 it's called the hermetic effect in, in essence. And that's how many training academies are designed. That is how the Secret Service Academy was designed. When you go in, they introduce you to small increments of stress over time. So the first day they may have you run three miles in the heat. The next day they may have you run five miles in the heat. The next day they may have you run five miles in the heat and then go do tactical training and chant the entire time. Or you'll have somebody yelling at you while you're doing training. And so they, they, they introduce all these different variables, but you don't do it all in one onslaught to a person because it's overwhelming. But you gradually introduce stress, that person develops coping mechanisms because we need coping mechanisms and then they overcome them. It's like, oh, I had this challenge. I figured out how to manage it. I overcame it. Oh, there's a new challenge. It's a little bit harder, but you know what? I think I got it. And then over a period of time, it's almost like a stepping ladder. You get to the top of the ladder and you realize, man, I can really handle so many difficult situations and it's not going to completely demolish me. In fact, I can, hand, I can take on anything. And that's really the mindset that we want to have. When stress comes your way, don't fear it. Don't panic. Don't think how horrible. Think of it, this is an opportunity to use this, whatever situation is happening to me, to figure out how to process, how to deal with it, how to deal with my F3, and then find a, a solution rather than getting completely crushed by it and thinking like, why me? How could this happen to me? That is why stress is so important. And I think it's such an important factor for parents today who really work so hard to shield 
their children from problems, from situations. And what they don't realize is they, they do such a disservice to them because when they grow up and life and challenges are going to happen, these kids don't know how to handle them because they've never been exposed. In the book, you share your experience during 9-11 and how you found meaning in your work to help you cope with that tragedy. Would you mind sharing your experience and how you use some of those principles that you discuss in the book? With my 9-11 story, and I opened up the book with my experience on on that day, the Secret Service headquarters uh, were located at the World Trade Center, 7 World Trade Center. And so Myself and a few of my colleagues, we stayed behind to to help, to be there as first responders. And we we didn't know, truly, we didn't really understand exactly what was happening. And even the collapse of the towers, nobody knew that they were going to collapse. And, but we did the best we could to be there to help evacuate people, to help um, give first aid pe- to people, to help just manage the situation the best we could. Now, with in, in sharing that story and using it for the premises of the book, I wanted to show that even in the worst of situations, we can always find hope and a choice. There's always a choice to be made. There's always hope to be made, to, to be found, even when we think that there is no hope. And for myself, I, I uh, without realizing it, after... September 11th happened. I did see many peers. I saw many other people struggling after the fact, understandably, with the trauma of that day. I, however, went straight into kind of work volunteer mode. And I began helping with the efforts at Ground Zero and working uh, shifts down at Ground Zero. Unbeknownst to me, though, because I was finding meaning in helping others, it helped me heal. And I noticed that over time, I didn't have the same struggles that other people did who were exposed to that event. And so when we can find meaning in tragedy, and when you can find goodness, if you just look at a bad event and just you see it bad from beginning to end, it's going to, yeah, nothing's going to be good. But if you can look at a situation and say, I know this happened to me. But how can I find meaning? How can I find something positive or create rather, create something positive in this? And that truly helps you overcome, especially when you're helping other people. And the science shows it. When you help others, it makes you happy. It heals you. You feel better about yourself and you're helping other people. And so that was really important for people who deal with tragedy because at some point in our lives, we all deal with some type of tragedy, tragedy and loss. And to give people some type of guidance to say, listen, I know this feels horrible, but here's a way for you to be able to to deal with it and overcome it and then help others in the process. And by proxy, really helping yourself. You describe something you call the secret service mindset. What is that and how can people apply it in their everyday life? As agents, we are trained and through habit to be very uh, diligent, very aware of our environment, very aware of others. And the idea is because you want to see a threat coming, you want to see a problem coming, and it can be any kind of problem. It doesn't have to be a physical problem. And this level of situational awareness, anybody can adapt. And I wanted to share that mindset with the reader. 
And it's not meant to be taken to an extreme where you want this on 24 hours a day and you're hyper vigilant and hypersensitive and looking at what everybody else is doing. But it's really to kind of clue you in and rather tune you in to the world around you, things to take notice or to think of. So, for example, something as simple as going to the movies, something that I really enjoy doing. Where do you sit? Do you sit in the middle of a movie theater? Um, Something to think about. How quickly can you get to the exit? Um, Can you find cover and concealment if you need it, if something were to happen in the movie theater? And some folks may look at this and say, oh, my God, that's so extreme. How could you think like that all the time? It's like, I don't really think like that all the time. It's a very simple thing. For me, it's like it's no different than looking both ways before I cross the street. Why do you do that? You know, you don't want to get hit by a car. You don't think, oh, my God, that's so morbid. Why do you do that? It's the same thing with the movie theater. And then we've also had situations over the years where we see certain things happen. And I wanted to really educate people and say, it is on you to take care of yourself. Don't look to someone else to save you or to help you or to get you out of bad situations or learn these things so that you can prevent bad situations from happening to you. 80% of what we do, 80% of of, uh, averting risk or problems are the things you do in advance. It's being proactive. So it's, it's just having that thoughtfulness, teaching you to be thoughtful about your environment, what you do, the choices you make. And it gives you responsibility and accountability. And by thus, by proxy, when you do these things, you feel more confident, you feel more secure, you are less fearful. We've seen an increase in attacks on soft targets Why do you think we're seeing that trend and what recommendations do you have as someone who's worked in protection? I think a big reason we see a trend is that once somebody does something, the next thing that the law enforcement or national security community worries about is great. Somebody did this. Now somebody else is going to copy it. And we do see that when somebody attacks a certain location, it plants a seed or puts the idea into other people to be like, oh, hey, I'm going to do that too. And we do see these attacks on soft targets, soft targets like malls, movie theater we've seen, restaurants, parks, outdoors. These are places where there's not a lot of security. And sometimes they're not like a hard target, like a place where you're really going to make a statement. But it does cause fear in people because they could be anywhere. And because they can be anywhere, having that mindset of, okay, I'm going to the coffee shop. I come here every day. Let me take an assessment of my environment around me and figure out, oh, there's a door there, there's a door there. I'm standing online. Who's behind me? Who's in front of me? Little things like that to just kind of control your space. Soft targets, it's just they're at this point, they're just, it's something that we've seen attacks happen. They're they're easy to do. It doesn't mean that they're going to happen a lot. They're not as enticing. Obviously, when you go to a big stadium event or you're going to a place like the Empire State Building, those are hard targets. Those are very enticing to attacks because you've got the three piece population, a large population of people. It's a symbolic place. You've got you've got some type of media or press exposure, usually like at an event or a game or anything like that. And so they do attract a lot of attention. The thing is, those places tend to have more security. Soft targets, although we're seeing an increase, we don't see that great of an increase or not as at risk as much. However, 
you you are somewhat more vulnerable. But again, you have some level of control. You can't live life afraid. It's like, look, if something happens, it happens. But but what you can do is when you go to a restaurant, figure out where are my exits. There's one in the front. Oh, there's one in the back in the kitchen because there's almost always one in the kitchen. And just something simple as that, while everybody else is running to the front door, you're going to run to the back door and you're going to get out safely and probably help some other people as well. You have an entire chapter on deception and some of the different techniques you've used during your career. So I guess I'll ask you kind of a different question. What's been kind of a case that was a tough nut to crack or, or what makes someone a really good liar? I think people are different and some people are just good liars. I don't think that there's a trait with it. It's just some people are good liars. And sometimes cases where I would see someone, I'm like, ah, he's going to fold. That person looked like an easy nut to crack, so to speak, and they wouldn't. So you people are so unique. And I think one of the important things that I, I wanted to stress in my book is to not stereotype people and put them in a box and say, all people behave this way. Every time somebody lies who fits this type of persona is going to look up and to the left because that is nonsense. There is no science to back that up. And so I see a lot of these gimmicky things that are being told and sold to people that don't work. They're not true. And the importance of the book was like, look, let me show you some things that you can use when it comes to deception, how to detect deception, and then also how to read people, red flags that you can, you can look out for. And who doesn't want to know how to read people? It's not just for detecting deception, but it's also for, am I connecting with this person? Does this person like me? Do they dislike me? Should I stop talking because they don't like me? Because nothing I'm saying right now is resonating. It enhances your ability to read someone else and communicate with them rather than kind of hitting a roadblock. You also give several tips about home safety and safety and using social media. What are some tips you think people might may not be considering and should be aware of in regards to safety measures? I think actually for right now, we're seeing so many schemes, so many schemes, online scams, frauds, where people need to be very careful. People getting hacked into because everything we're doing now is from home. So one thing to be to be aware of. And it's interesting because I get calls all the time now. Somebody just called the other day saying somebody hacked into my computer, into my work account, and they froze all my stuff. And they're asking me, asking me for money to release my information, which is a common scheme we've seen. But he's kind of a small business owner. And he's thinking, why would they target me? Because it's becoming so easy now. And law enforcement have their hands full right now. They really do. And a lot of these scams happen overseas where that makes it even harder. To, to deal to help a person because it's it's a person from another country. So really think about ways in which to protect yourself. One, think about the computer you're working from at home. That should be your work computer. If you have kids or other family members watching movies, downloading software, downloading apps onto it, what, whatever they're doing, be mindful because that's going to make your stuff more vulnerable. Use a VPN. Be mindful of that. And then scams. Anybody who's reaching out to you to say, hey, I literally actually, Beth, it's so funny. I just got a text maybe 10 minutes before you, you, we got on to do this uh, interview saying, hey, there's some money that's waiting for you. Please respond to this text message so we can help you get your money. Anything like that, as soon as you get that, you hit delete, delete, delete. 
So there's so many scams out there. IRS. So there, there's, you should be super mindful, super, super thoughtful when you get these, the majority of which you should ignore. And if somebody calls you and says, hey, this is your bank, Citibank, we're calling you because we, we think something's going on in your account. And you're thinking to yourself, I'm not sure. Hang up on them and call back the 1-800 number you find on Citibank online and call them and say, hey, I just got a call. So anytime somebody's asking you for information, don't give it. Don't give it. Don't give it. Online, on the phone, hang up and you call back that entity back. And if you don't recognize it, don't worry about it. Because sometimes they'll also use, they'll come up with ways to frighten you into thinking you have to talk to them. Don't. You also share a story of working for Barbara Bush and some of the things that you worked with her on in terms of a protection plan as she was, um, I guess, transitioning out of being a, a protected person with the Secret Service. Can you talk a little bit about that and what kind of transferable lessons there might be for other young people? With Barbara, it was unique because she had protection for so many years of her life. Growing up, I mean, she was always under protection. So in, to some degree, she was more vulnerable than the average person because she never had to worry about safety and protection. Somebody else did all that stuff for her. And I knew that when her time was going to be up, it would be a bit more difficult for her. And I had a wonderful relationship with her because she was my, my protectee. And, you know, we talked and I said, look, we're going to come up with some strategies, some things that I want you to know, some basics, because I won't be here. The team won't be here. And if something happens to you, what you should do. So we talked about safe houses, very simple things. I was like, do you, you know, I asked her, do you know where the fire department is close to your house? No, she didn't know. Do you know where the police department is? No, I don't know. I was like, well, let's go see. Because if something happens and you need help, I want you to know automatically where to go because you may not be able to go home. And who do you call? What what should you do? So there was just so many very basic things that um, I taught her, even giving her a list of emergency numbers. And, you know, outside of 911 that she could call and reach out to. And just teaching her to have mindfulness when she was out and about, because it would just be a very different scenario. And as a young person, or quite frankly, as anybody, when you have a, your wits about you, you you feel better when you go out into the world. You feel more confident. You don't feel as vulnerable. You think, okay, I'm good. If something happens, I'm going to do everything I can to be proactive and make sure nothing happens to me. But if something happens, I have an idea of what I need to do. Rather than something happening and you completely freeze. You don't know what to do because when we are in stressful situations and anybody who's ever been over-emotional, over-angry, over-stressed out, overly threatened, you can't think. And during an emergency situation, a crisis, you don't want to sit and try to put a plan together. When leaving the Secret Service, you talk about how it was an adjustment for you to present yourself in a different way. How did you adapt to the culture in Secret Service and then also adapt again after leaving? When I was in the service, you adapt because you're around other people who are adapting as well. In training really kind of embeds in you the yes, sir, no, sir, um, the hierarchy, understanding who's in charge, the chain of command. It's a, a paramilitary type of environment. I had no knowledge about anything like that. So 
It was a crash course. I had to learn quite a bit about how it worked. So if I needed to talk to a boss, I couldn't just go to any boss. I had to learn, no, you go to your immediate boss and you speak to that person. And then if there's an issue, then they'll go to their boss. So there's all these nuances and things I didn't know. Also navigating things. You're, especially when you're new, it's not that nobody wants to hear from you. They do, but you're also new and you're learning. And sometimes you're not able to be as vocal or share information and you're kind of more or less to some degree following orders in many ways. And you're also speaking on behalf of others, not for yourself. When I transitioned into working in television, I, I learned that now I'm speaking on behalf of myself. I also had to be a bit more outgoing and outspoken And it was very much the antithesis of how I was when I was in service, because it was just a different persona. You know, when you're on TV, you have to to have life to yourself. You have to be a bit more intense when you speak so that people are drawn to watching and listening to you. In the service, it was the opposite. Speak softer, hang out in the shadows more. I don't want to say speak when spoken to, but sometimes it was speak when spoken to. So it's just a very different environment. And then also in the latter career, it's about speaking up for myself. And it's wild. It's nothing I ever really had to do before because I was always speaking on behalf of somebody else. And it's usually easier to defend someone else or speak up for someone else. And then when it comes to us, we think, oh, should I be doing that? Oh, I don't want to come off a certain way. I had to get rid of that mentality. A few themes run through your book, like being observant, being a good listener, and being comfortable with silence, especially when you talk about interrogation. Some of these are not comfortable for everyone, especially in American culture. Can you talk more about the importance of these traits? Yeah, that's why I talk about them, because we don't do them. And it's interesting because some people say to me, oh yeah, I know I should be more silent, but why don't you do it then? You can know all you want, but if you don't execute, it's meaningless. And other people think, no, I, I want to control the conversation. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to guide this person. I'm going to kind of navigate them to where I want them to go. And I'm going to control it. And, and it's the opposite. The person who speaks more has the least power. You do. Because the more you speak, the less knowledge you have. And the more the person across from you has learned about you. And if you're doing a business deal, You don't want them to know a lot about you. You want to know everything about them so that you can navigate the conversation in a place that resonates with them, so that you can connect with them. You don't want them to connect with you. You you want to connect with them, especially if you're the one working hard to create a relationship. And the only way you do that is by literally shutting up. And in the Western world, we have a problem with keeping our mouths closed because we don't listen and we cut people off. Next time you go to a meeting, Beth, Sit back and watch how many people interrupt, correct, or cut somebody else off and how that changes the structure of the conversation and also affects the rapport and connection people have within each other. Nobody likes to get cut off. And then also you don't know what, what's going to come out of that person's mouth. And they may be leaving, not may, they're leaving breadcrumbs for you so that you can jump in later with more thoughtful conversations, more thoughtful things that you can say that will resonate with them instead of going into a negotiation, a business deal, being completely in the blind, being like, I don't know where to start this. 
I don't know about this guy. I don't know anything about him. I don't anything about her. Shut up. Open the conversation. Let them talk. Get a good read on them. And then you can enter the conversation in a more thoughtful place. It's just strategic. And start practicing. Practice on your loved ones. Practice on your spouse or partner. Just say, today, I'm going to listen and talk less. It's a habit. But you have to cultivate this habit. It doesn't happen overnight. You also talk about being presidential and some of the qualities you've observed in the people you've protected. And obviously, folks can read the book for the whole story. But can I ask you to share a story about maybe one of the people you talk about who displayed a presidential quality? I share um, a story. For, in the Actually, the chapter you're referring to is chapter 23 in my book. And what... I wanted to do was was share a bit of behind the scenes without violating, you know, the the loyalty and trust that my protectees placed in me, but to share the behind the scenes of things that I learned from the people I protected, and also give people a glimpse of the behind the scenes. And I, I did I did all my protectees, Democrat, Republican, it it, it didn't matter. And truly, when you do that job, at least for me, it didn't matter what they were. You know, it was the president of the United States, it was the first lady. That's it. And I took stories from, from all of them, that at least those that I had experience with, because I could only speak with those that I had interactions and experience with and shared. And probably the last one, which was President Barack Obama, which is one of the stories I share, is where he had been approached by someone who at the time, we were at the White House, and I didn't really know who this person was initially. I knew they had access for some reason, the president knew them. And when he was engaging the president and he had his family with him and he was like, Mr. President, take a picture with my kids and Mr. President. And he kept kind of gushing over him, almost like, you know, a bit fanboying a bit. And I remember thinking, okay, they must really know each other because initially I was about to kind of run interference. And the president was very gracious. He talked to his family members, took pictures with his kids, talked to his wife. And then after it was over, as we were walking to the elevator to go up to the residence. And that's when he says, that guy that was all over me before. And I was like, yeah, he's like, that guy's done nothing but berate me and humiliate me in public and call me all sorts of names. And he went through the names that this guy had called him. And they were horrible names. And I remember hearing that and thinking, what he just did, that is not easy. To sit there and be gracious to someone who's done nothing but insult you and berate you. And not to just to your face or behind your back, but publicly on national television. And I thought that is presidential. And so I, for myself, I, I think of that anytime I deal with any type of situation like that, where you want to tear into someone and you want to be like, well, let me tell you what I think of you. And I think of that and I think of what class it takes and strength to be that way. So you have a very distinguished career in the Secret Service, which is one of the most elite law enforcement agencies and security agencies in the world. And you describe a couple of stories in the book about being sometimes in the minority in terms of women in the service. What advice would you give to a young person, especially young women who are coming after you and are interested in pursuing a career in national security? So I want to give this advice, not just for women or for anybody, fill in the blank, whatever, you know, your, 
you are where you feel that you might be at a, at a disadvantage because of race, gender, sex, ethnicity, whatever. You fill in that blank. I think the most important thing is don't ever think that that, that makes you less than. And don't have that at the forefront of your mind. I am this. And as a result, people are going to see me this way. My advice and what the approach that I took and still do, it's like, I don't, I see myself as a special agent. I see myself as a a TV host or a journalist. I don't put, well, I am a female this, or I am a female special agent. Because the minute I do that, I'm putting this caveat, I'm qualifying it, that it, it, well, you know what? I'm a little bit less than everybody else. So I have to put this in there. It's like, oh no, 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 no. You qualify like everybody else. You do what you need to do. And if other people have a problem, they have the problem. But if you're performing and you're you're putting it at yourself out there, that is what matters. And don't ever let those things get in the way of you pursuing anything. Well, you know what? I'm a woman. So using myself as an example, I shouldn't put in for this job. And I had people tell me straight out, why are you doing this? Nobody's going to hire you. My own father did it. And I love my father. He's like, hey, you're wasting your time filling in this paperwork. They're not going to hire you. So you can either sit there and listen to it, or you can be like, thank you very much and keep going. The first no you ever hear should never come from you. Let somebody else tell you no. And for every 10 no's you get, somebody's going to say yes. That's all you need is you need that one yes. You keep banging on those doors and doing what you need to do. And do not waste your time with people who see you as less than. Move on. Push those people aside. They don't, they are not worthy of your time. They will, they will distract you. They will distract you. And take your energy and put it into doing what you need to do to be successful and and, and pursue the things you want to do. Well, Evie, we've taken up a lot of your time, but before we let you go, could you tell us what you're working on now? So now that Bulletproof has launched and um, my season one of my new show, Spy Games, launched, I am I do work in journalism. So behind the scenes, investigating pieces, and then even as a, a producer, executive producer on different projects related to crime, national security, spies, like that's kind of my my universe, the space I swim in, and even writing articles. So it's, it's, it's wild because it's, it's, uh, it's a, such a different interest industry. And I also teach as an, as an adjunct professor, I teach criminal justice and criminology. And so I also teach to undergrad. Um, and it's, it's a different world, like learning to produce, learning to write stories, learning to create content, um, whether it's in TV, whether it's in film, whether it's, Unscripted, which is kind of the term that they use for reality stuff, real stuff, and then scripted, which is TV, film, you know, make believe sort of stuff, fiction. So I, it's a unique world. I love the world, and it's just the world I'm, I'm still, you know, even after all this time, trying to learn how to navigate. Well, best of luck with your projects, and thanks for being on the show today. Thank you so much, Beth. Appreciate it. Becoming Bulletproof by Evie Pomporis is available now from Atria Books. Thanks for listening to New Books in National Security, a podcast channel on the New Books Network.